Would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? We're going to read two passages this morning. First, in Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, which read, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And then the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God then give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. And then also in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11, the Holy Scriptures read, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin this morning? Father, help us to understand the truth in this text. Give me clarity of communication and give the listeners here today clarity of thought and a distraction-free time as we take just a few moments to look at the power that is within your written word. Help us to live by this, Lord. Help us to change our affections so that we stop loving the fading things of this world, but love you, who is eternal and worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. Be with us now. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Every New Year's Eve, millions of people around the world celebrate the new year, hoping that the next year is going to be better than the last. And usually, they make plans to ensure that this next coming year will be better than the last. How? New Year's resolutions. By making these New Year's resolutions, we vow, you know what, next year, I'm not sleeping in so much. Next year will be the year that I finally lose those pesky 10 pounds I've been trying to drop. Next year, I'm going to work less and finally spend more time with my family. In 2021, studies showed that nearly half of Americans make at least one, if not more, New Year's resolutions. And when it comes to the most common resolutions, Studies show that 44% of resolutioners resolutioned to exercise more, 42% of resolutioners resoluted to eat more healthy, 31% resolutioned to lose weight, and 30% resolution to not waste so much money. 
and almost 20% resolated to either quit smoking or cut back on alcohol consumption. And what becomes then of these resolutioners' resolutions? Well, I think we already know the answer to this here, but here it is. might surprise you. One study found that 77% of people hold firm to their resolutions for a whole week. Which means then, I'm not a math person, but somebody can check me on this, almost 25% of people didn't even make it to week one in their resolutioning. They're all real words. Over the next month, it doesn't get any better either because roughly 80% of people give up on their resolutions by when? The second week of February. The fact is, whether it be a New Year's resolution or just trying to just pick up a good habit, say in July, whatever, right? The fact is, we have all experienced this kind of failure. Anybody here ever made a religious, there we go, religious resolution before? Maybe to read your Bible more. Anybody done that? Uh, what about to pray more? Or serve in church more? Or just go to church more? And I just got to say, that last one as a pastor, I don't get why that one was all that hard. It's easy for me to just follow that one myself. But almost like it's my job. But the point is, when it comes to resolutions, though we are resolved in our determination, though we really do want to succeed and we try our absolute hardest, we still usually end up sitting there in mid-February looking at that treadmill that we just purchased that has more clothes on it than a Kohl's shelf. Anybody ever done that one before? Which, how does that make us feel then? Makes us feel defeated. Makes us feel a little bit shameful, Right? makes us feel like, I am never actually going to get my act together here. Church, by this point in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, this is exactly the way you should be feeling if you're actually understanding what Jesus is saying. You should not be feeling like you just got a pep talk with a whole bunch of New Year's resolutions, and this is going to be the year to do it. That's not how you should be feeling, even a little bit. Because as we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, the standard for righteousness given to all those who would resolve to enter the kingdom of heaven by said righteousness and their obedience to that righteousness, it has a 100% fail rate by January 1st, one second into the new year. That's the failure rate. No one can do it. No one can make it. And so because of this, when it comes to entering the kingdom of heaven, remember that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the kingdom. That's why our whole series is called the kingdom. He's telling them what kingdom citizens are like and how you get into the kingdom. But no one can do it. No one can measure up to the standard. And so because of this, when it comes to entering the kingdom of heaven, there's three things we must do, and here they are. In our resolutions to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must first quit Second, ask. And three, trust. Let's look at that first point this morning. In our resolution to enter the kingdom, we must first quit. Now, why do I say that? All right, well, look in your Bibles with me at Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, and let me ask you, what is the first word you see in that sentence? Ask. 
uh-oh, preacher's out of order here, right? No, we're not out of order. Just hold on. Yes, that ask is our second point. But let me ask you this. Aha. What is the inverse of asking? What's the inverse of asking for help? Trying to do it all yourself, right? That's what it is. And so who here doesn't need help with following moral, the moral instructions that we see in the Sermon on the Mount? Who here is like, I can do that. I'm going to resolute to do all these resolutions, and it's going to resolute just fine. None of us, right? And if you don't think so, think back with me for a moment. Who here perfectly recognizes their moral bankruptcy before a holy God? And then out of that recognition of your moral bankruptcy, you mourn perfectly over your sin. You live the most meek life ever, surpassing even that of Moses, who is the meekest one to ever live. You are perfectly hungry and thirsty for righteousness to the point that you are salt and light in a dark and decaying world, which then sees you as salt and light and gets mad about it and persecutes you for it. And then when you're persecuted, you don't get all Eeyore about it and sad. You rejoice. You're like, this is great. Thank you. I love this. Anybody got all that down? But wait, there's more. Which of us is perfectly merciful towards others? Which of us is perfectly pure in heart? Which means what? That all of your desire and affections are undivided because what is your ultimate desire and affection? Just God. That's where you're at. Who here is perfectly perfected the art of peacemaking? Which means you aren't just a peacekeeper, right? Like if you don't have any conflict in your life, that doesn't mean you're a peacemaker. You might just be a peacekeeper, right? You're a peacemaker is what Jesus says. Which means you perfectly speak the truth in love always at the right time in the right moment. Anybody got all that down? But wait, there's more. You never get angry at others. You never have anger in your heart towards even your enemies. You never lust towards others. You always keep your word, and you never retaliate towards your enemies, but you pray for them. And when you give your money, when you fast, and when you pray, you always do these things for the right reasons. It's never about drawing attention and spotlighting yourself. It's always for the glory of God and for the good of others. And also, don't forget, when you do pray, not only are you not trying to to draw attention to yourself, you are praying, asking that God's will would be done and giving him praise and glory well before you ever get to asking for your daily bread. Anybody got all that down? But wait, there's more. (laughs) You never worry about a thing because not because everything's going to be all right, but because you're so heavenly minded that your earthly goods have no significance to you by comparison. You know those things are fading. You know they're passing away. And then also, when somebody wants and demands your tunic, you say, oh, here, take my cloak. Why? Because your heart's desire is perfectly set upon the kingdom of heaven because the king of that kingdom is your ultimate heart's treasure and it's your desire. Anybody got all that down? And I almost forgot last week, super easy to follow kingdom rule. So we got to get this one in here, but it's pretty easy, so I don't even know if I should mention it. You never wrongly judge anybody else. Which, I'm sorry, because those judgy people are the absolute worst. Are they not? 
Anybody got that down? In fact, you're so good at not judging others, it's like somebody gave you spiritual clear eyes, all right? Because not only are there no logs at all in your eyes, but you perfectly are loving and gracious towards others in a way where you are graciously trying to help remove the specks that are in their eyes. See where we're going here? None of us has this all down. And so, church, do you realize how incredibly naive it is to read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount like that? Because a lot of people do. They're like, hey, you know what this is? This is like spiritual fortune cookies, right? This is like a Christian self-help book. You want to have a better life? You want to make God happier and be a good Christian? Just do all this stuff. Just like Jesus says. It's not what it's about. It's not about that at all. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and here's the thing, it is absolutely not a doable New Year's resolution. I don't care how hard you resolve to do this, you are not going to be able to do it. And we haven't even got to next week's text, which is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. You're not going to get within 10 miles of that thing. So if you think Jesus' teachings are doable, Boy, are you in for a rude awakening one way or the other. Because the truth is, you're not going to make it. So what do we do? Just give up? Quit? Abandon all hope, ye who read here. (laughs) No. See, some of you might think, I mean, on one hand, we are supposed to give up. That's our first point, right? But does that mean then that we are just supposed to continue in sin, that grace may abound, just do what we want, no big deal, we can't do this, so kuna matata, let's just party. Well, Paul answers that question in Romans chapter 6, where he says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The implied answer to Paul's question is this, we can't. We who died to sin, we can't still live in sin. No, of course we can't do that. Revelation 21.8 says this, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Similarly, Romans 2, 6 through 8 says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be what? Wrath and fury. The Bible is absolutely clear on two things. Listen this morning, two things. Here they are. You must obey God's law fully, and you can't do it. It's crystal clear. It's impossible. Why? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says this, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one does what? Seeks for God. But wait, what about all those seekers out there who genuinely want God if they could just find him? No one seeks for God. Why? All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. The truth is, none of us can live up to God's glorious standard. Not a single one of us. 
And if that wasn't already clear enough, the Sermon on the Mount makes this crystal clear for us. For as Jesus told them, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, who, by the way, were like the Navy SEALs of religious obeyers, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I want to show you one more passage here before we jump into this a little bit more, but here's what 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And look what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Church, you see what these verses are saying? They're saying, as Christians, all of that sinful yuck that we had on us that would keep us out of God's perfectly clean and holy kingdom has been washed off. Not because I removed it through my moral obedience, but because somebody removed it from me. Do you, are, let me ask you, are those passive verbs or active verbs for my fellow grammar nerds? Those are passive verbs. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Those are things that are passively happening to us, not things that we actively do that make us washed, that make us sanctified, that make us justified. And praise God, there are no active verbs there because if my washing, my sanctifying, my justifying were contingent upon my actions, upon my resolutions, if you would, then what? I'm in a whole lot of trouble. You're in a whole lot of trouble. We are all in a whole lot of trouble. Unless, however, we were washed, we were sanctified, and we were justified by somebody who has the power to do all those things, which is who? That's right. God himself. And how does God wash, sanctify, and justify us? Well, I'm glad you asked because that question leads us to our second point. In our resolutions to enter the kingdom, we must first quit. Quit what? Trying to live up to this resolution on our own, right? That's the first step, realizing, I can't do this. You can't do this. But secondly, ask. Look at verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks find, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. When we have finally come to the place, where we realize that we cannot save ourselves, what do we do? We ask. We knock. We seek. And what happens when we seek in this way? We find. How? So we try really hard. We resolve to resolute all the resolute words. Do we do all that stuff? New Year's resolutions, right, for following this stuff? No. How? By calling upon the name of the Lord. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not might be saved, not will be saved if they continue producing enough fruit or will be saved because they are a super Christian or will be saved because they follow enough of the Sermon on the Mount. No, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, period. 
Romans 10, 9 through 11. How does this work? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you might be saved. No, you will be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, this is important, for everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. What does that mean not to be put to shame? means not to be put to shame. You're not going to trust in him and then end up, well, that was a big mistake. Shouldn't have put my money into that investment. It's not going to happen. Why? Because John 3.16, as we all know, the verse says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Is that should not perish? Is that a might not perish or will not perish? It's will not. It's a promise. Is God's promises trustworthy? Absolutely they are. And so this church is the gospel. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot do active verbs to get God's righteousness. They must be passively given to us. And that comes to us, how? By grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ. The gospel's pretty simple, is it not? It's so simple, even a five-year-old can understand it. Many of you came to trust in the gospel at such a young age. However, one of the things I've noticed, whenever I share the gospel with people, and I explain to them the absolute simplicity of it, I often get this look like, that's too simple. What do you mean? i, I got to do something, right? It can't be that simple. And the other thing is, it actually becomes offensive to most people because of how simple it is. Because we have been so accustomed to having to do our part, right? We want to build the muscle, we go to the gym. We want to lose weight, we discipline ourselves to diet, right? If I want to get the job, I got to work on the resume. But do you see, church, that resume building doesn't work with God? He's not impressed, even the slightest. And so it doesn't matter how good your spiritual LinkedIn profile is or how many job recommendations you have, your spiritual resume before God is absolutely not good enough. It's not going to cut it. And so what must we do? Humble ourselves before God's law. Admit that we are not capable of keeping it and then ask for his help. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it might be opened, it will be opened, is what it says there. And so here's the thing. It doesn't matter how badly you failed at living a righteous life. But the inverse of that is true as well. It doesn't matter how much you've succeeded in living a righteous life. Whichever camp you're in, you still must come to the point of recognizing, I can't do this, God. I need your help. Now, wait a minute, preacher. I know all that's true, but what does this have to do with salvation? Isn't this, I mean, I've heard this text preached all about just things to pray for, right? I want the new card. God, give me the card. If I keep asking, he'll give it to me. I want the new job, the new house, whatever. Isn't that what this text is about? No, I don't think that's what this text is about. Why? Why? Well, Luke 11 is a parallel passage of Jesus' teaching here. And in Luke 11, you notice in our text, what does Jesus promise that our Father will give us? What does he call it? Two words, good things, right? If you ask, 
he will give you these good things. Okay, so the question is, all right, well, what are those good things? Is that the car? Is that the new house? Is that, what is this stuff? Luke 11 answers for us, which is a parallel passage. All right, so I'm going to tell us what this is here. I'm going to read this. Here's what it says these good things are. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Right? Very similar to Matthew, our text here in Matthew chapter 7. Let's keep going. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Right? Parallel passage, right? Same teaching. Verse 13. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give? What are the good gifts? The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. See, the Gospels often have the same stories and the parallels in them told from a slightly different perspective. They're not contradicting each other. They're complementing each other. And so the good things Luke tells us is what? The Holy Spirit. And that is incredibly significant. Why, church? Why is that significant? Because not only did the Father give us his one and only Son to die for us, but he also gave us the Holy Spirit of God, which is proof for our salvation and guarantees it as Ephesians 1 tells us. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says this, In him, which is Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were what? Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That Holy Spirit seals us, seals our salvation as a guarantee, and also enables us to be able to receive every spiritual... I mean, I can't preach Ephesians 1 this morning. I'd love to. But it enables us to receive all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Those are ours. So when we go to God and ask him to help us, give us Christ's righteousness, and he does, then the door opens for all those spiritual blessings. And they're available to us. And how do we get them? Ask, right? Ask and you will receive. All of that comes simply by asking. We can't earn it. We can't pay for it. We receive it by grace because it is the gift of God. And if that wasn't remarkable enough, the Apostle Peter tells us about these spiritual gifts a little bit more and what they entail for our lives. All right, this is important. 1 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. There's all things again, right? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. What this means then is for all those who have humbly asked God for his divine saving aid, not only are you given the perfect righteousness of Christ, credited to your account, but you have everything else that you need for life and godliness right there for you. All the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, they're there for you. Ask. He'll give them to you. And this isn't like it's a one-time, hey, can I have all the spiritual blessings I need for the rest of my life? Okay, good. No, this is a dependence thing, right? That's why we're titling this message today with the word dependence in it, the dependence of the kingdom. It's to daily go to God. Once we have come to the Father and asked for his divine saving aid, we need to regularly go to him and ask him for the food we need, for our daily bread, right? To even give us our spiritually bread so that we can, as this verse says, 
have everything we need for life and godliness. All of it is ours for the taking. For our Father gives us exactly what we need when we need it, which leads us to our last point this morning. In our resolution to enter the kingdom, we must quit, we must ask, and then finally, we must trust. Look with me at verse 9. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? And verse 11 is interesting, because what does he say? If we then who are evil? No, if you then who are evil. Jesus is excluded from that category of evil men, because he's the perfect son of God. All right, let's read. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things? We just looked at what those good things were, right, church? Give good things to those who ask him. In our scripture reading from earlier, we looked at Luke 18, right, with the parable about the widow who kept asking the unjust judge for justice. And this unjust judge was an evil man who neither feared God nor respected others. And what happened? At first, the judge was like, no way, go away. I don't care about your stupid problems. Leave me alone. But the woman kept coming. She kept asking. She kept pleading. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Over and over and over. And finally, he's like, shut up. Take it. Fine. Leave me alone. Get out of here. Sick of your whining. And what's the point of that text? The point is just, church, just keep bugging God, keep praying him, and he'll give you what you want. No, that's not the point at all of that text, right? Sometimes that text is represent. That's not what it's saying. The point of it, of that parable, it's not comparing God to an unjust ruler. It's contrasting God, who is our father. He's a loving father. And the point is, hey, look, if this unjust judge is going to maybe relent and give in if you keep bugging and ask him, think how much more so your heavenly father will give good things to his children whom he loves. That's a major difference. Unlike the unjust judge, we aren't trying to tire out the God who never sleeps. For if we were, then it would make sense to pray, as Jesus says not to in Matthew chapter 5, as the pagans do, who babble on and on and on, thinking that they will be heard for their many words. We don't pray like that, because we are not approaching an unjust judge. However, we're not simply just approaching a just judge either, because if that's what it was, we'd be in more trouble. Because at least with an unjust judge, he might do something unjust and give us something that we don't deserve. A just judge isn't going to. But instead, we are approaching God, who is the just judge, as our heavenly Father. And that's Jesus' point in verses 9 through 11. He's saying, if you then who are evil give good gifts to your children, then how much more will your heavenly Father give you all the good things you need that pertain to life and godliness? He will. How much more so, though, is the question, church. I'll tell you how much more so. Romans 8, 31 through 32 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? The implied answer is, of course he will. He was going to give us his one son, his only son, the son whom he loved, to borrow the language that God used with Abraham and Isaac when he told Abraham to sacrifice his son. If he was willing to give us that, 
won't he give us everything else that we need that pertains to life and godliness? Of course he will. Our need was great. Our sins, they were many. The wrath of God lay upon us, waiting to crush us with the power of an all-powerful God. And yet, because of the great love with which he loved us, God sent his one and only son to die the death that you and I deserved so that we might live as the beloved children of God. Do you believe that? Is that where your hope lies? Or are you still looking at the perfect law of God and foolishly thinking that you can do that? Yeah, I might need a little help here and there, but I got this. Are you deluding yourself into thinking that next year is the year where I will finally get myself under control spiritually? I'll start doing this stuff. I'll live up to God's holy standard. That's going to be it. We're going to do this. You think that way. If so, quit trying. Ask for God's divine aid. And then trust that he will continue to provide everything you need for life and godliness and seek him daily for that aid. Church, these verses have nothing to do with God giving us the Ferrari or the new house, do they? Nothing at all. They have nothing to do with promising that if we ask, God will give us a pain-free, sickness-free, happily-ever-after American dream. We're going to look at that next week when Pastor Craig is here preaching. These verses are not about giving us what we want, but what we need. And what we need is godliness. We need God. And fundamentally what we need is a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, which means we need the righteousness of Christ because he's the only one. He's the God-man, the only one whose righteousness surpasses the righteousness of even the most righteous. That's what it's saying. That's what Jesus is pointing our attention to, which means that our ultimate need, the ultimate good thing that you and I need is Christ. In a moment, we're about to sing the lyrics which go, How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only Son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Have you accepted God's precious gift? His one and only Son? Have you trusted in His shed blood, which atones for our sin? If not, seek, knock, ask, and it will be given to you. And then, when you've done that, rejoice, because we have the promise of Romans 10, which tells us that all those who trust in Christ will never be put to shame. Never. And so praise God for Jesus, who is our Savior, who perfectly fulfilled the just demands of the law for us so that we can rest safely in his righteousness as the children of God. Father, I thank you for this text. Lord, I just pray for the one here who is not resting in Christ's righteousness. Whether that be somebody who never has or one of your children who has began to look back at law, began to think 
that your approval or disapproval of them is based upon their performance. Lord, help them to recognize that they cannot atone for one single sin. Not by obedience, not by New Year's resolutions, but only by trusting in Christ, whose shed blood perfectly pays for all the sins we will ever do. Father, I pray for the Christian who is defeated by their sin. I pray, Lord, that they would look back to the cross and recognize that their sin is serious, that it required the shed blood of the one and only Son of God. And then once they recognize that and feel the remorse over their sin, I ask that they would not look to themselves, but that they would go to you again and ask for the power they need to conquer their sin, to kill their sin, that they might live in the power of your Spirit in a holy and glorifying way. Father, help us as a church to never forget the gospel. Help the gospel to be first and forefront in all that we do. Help us to encourage each other with these words. To not come around and lay law upon each other. Yes, to rebuke. Yes, to speak truth in love. But always in a way that points us back to the reminder of the precious gift that we've been given, which is salvation through your Son. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.